Well, friends, today we're going to start a new series. The series is called Simply Christian. The idea behind the series is that last year we worked our way through the Bible. We were able to hear the whole story of the Bible, our history, and our future. And this year I want to talk a little bit about theology, some of the basic premises of our faith. And I think that sometimes we forget when we've been sitting in the pews for years and years and years how it is that that we started out. How did we go about this search for God and for faith and what it is that makes us Christian? Some of the stuff that we'll talk about this summer will be Christian. And some of it will be Christian but uniquely Presbyterian. But any way you look at it, we're going to start off with the basics. So today, if you would go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 25, we're going to be talking about justice. Let me pray for us, and we will study the word of the Lord. Gracious God, we thank you for this good opportunity. Help us do something good with it. In your name we pray. Amen. Contrary to popular belief, not all of us are created equal. In my senior year of high school, when most kids are taking calculus or at least trigonometry, I took a class called Foundations of College Math. And while it had this wonderful fancy name and it sounded very important, it basically meant math class for kids who weren't so great at math. And I was never, ever upset about being in this class. In fact, I chose the class anything to avoid the pain of a real math class. And to me, any stigma that was attached to being in the class was actually just a reflection of the reality that when it came to math, I wasn't so great at it. One day, the entire lesson was on how to divide things fairly. A concept at the time I felt confident I would never use in real life. So the teacher pulled out a cupcake and and she said, now how do we divide this fairly? Notice the little nuance that she threw in there. We're going to divide it fairly, not evenly. And she hands Chris a knife and she says, have at it. And immediately all of us thought that was incredibly unfair because who was Chris that he got to be the one to make the cut? Chris was thrilled at all of his new power and he cut that cupcake with the ceremony of a royal wedding. But just as quickly as he had risen to power, Chris was asked to return to his seat. And Rebecca was called up to the front of the class, and she got to choose which half of the cupcake she wanted. The teacher did this with every remaining pair of kids across the class. And I can't say that every divide was equal. But under this system, I can say that everyone was fair. Now, as a side note, as a mom of three, I now find this to be one of the most useful things that I ever learned in high school. From the time that most of us begin to talk, we've been instilled with this inner idea of justice, of fairness. And we start using the word long before we really know what it means. Long before we can even communicate what it means to be fair, we, we have this innate understanding of what it is. Test this out. You put a bunch of little kids in a room and you give them some toys. It's not very long before somebody's screaming, that's not fair. We get this concept early on. And as we get older, we start to wrap our minds around the idea of justice. We understand that that there are things in the world that are just not 
right. And for the vast majority of us, we have this sense of longing, of, of urgency to get things set right. But then injustice just becomes part of our daily living. And we watch the news and, and we see so much injustice. And we still have this sense that all is not right in the world, but it just seems a little too overwhelming to do anything about it. Justice seems like this elusive concept. When it comes to justice, we're like moths trying to fly to the moon. We can't quite get it. And yet, there really is such a thing as putting something to rights, as fixing it, as getting it back on track. In the legal world, you will often hear about people wanting to make someone whole again. Not better off, not further ahead than where they were, but restoring them to wholeness. When we're broken, when we see brokenness in the world, we want things to be made right again. And where we struggle is that we sometimes feel as though justice just slips through our fingers. When the innocent get convicted and the guilty go free and those who can afford it buy their way out of trouble. When people hurt us and they walk away laughing, it just seems like injustice wins. N.T. Wright, he's a modern theologian, says that the same thing is going on in the wider world. Countries invade other countries and they get away with it. The rich use the power of their money to get even richer, while the poor who can't do anything about it get poorer. And most of us scratch our heads and wonder why, and then we go out and we buy another product that profits the rich company. Wright makes this important point with that observation that the line between justice and injustice is not a line that is drawn between us and them. It's a line that cuts right down the middle of each one of us. We know what we ought to do. We, we know that, but we all manage, at least some of the time, not to do it. So we know that each one of us has this inherent thirst for justice. It's part of our DNA. It is built into who we are. We know that the world is not as it should be, and we are searching for something better. This is one of the foundations of our faith. This is one of the places where we start talking about God. The quest for a better way for justice that seems impossible for us as mortals that must come from a higher power. We're looking for the world to be put to rights, and we believe that God is capable of doing just that. And then we get this idea that the church, as God's agent in the world, is responsible for bringing about such justice. However, throughout history, the history of church buildings, ever since that first church building was put up, there are people who say almost on a weekly basis, you know, the church should really do something about that. The church should say something about that. The church should speak to that. Here's the problem with that belief. Because we are the church. You and I are the church. This building has no more capabilities of setting the world to rights than the small world right at Disney World does. It's just a building. But the people, we, the people, you and me, 
we can be the agents of bringing about justice in the world. The point of following Jesus isn't simply so that we can be sure that we're going to a better place than this after we die. Our future beyond death is enormously important. I am not belittling that. But the nature of Christian hope is such that it plays back into our present lives. It's not that we have a God who's only concerned about us when we die. He's concerned about our here and now, and we're called to the here and now to be instruments of God's new creation, the world put to rights, which was launched in Jesus Christ, and of which Jesus' followers are supposedly not to be simply beneficiaries, but agents, agents of justice in the world. There's this moment in scripture when Jesus has left the temple and he's walking away and his disciples come running up after him and and they think that what they want to talk about is is buildings and material things and the disarray of the people and the uncertainty of the government and everything's falling apart. And Jesus, in Matthew 24, at the start of this conversation, takes a look around and he says, I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one of them is going to be thrown down. And that's how Jesus started the conversation about the kingdom that is to come and what God's justice is ultimately going to look like. Now, he closes the conversation with the passage that we're going to look at today, and that's the one in Matthew 25, starting in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his throne of glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats are at the left. Notice here that there is coming a moment of reckoning for everyone, good, bad, and ugly. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom that is prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Well, then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw that you were hungry and gave you food, or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you, or naked, or gave you clothing? And when was it that you were sick in prison and we visited you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. And then he will turn and he will look to those on his left hand. And he will say, you that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger You did not welcome me naked. You did not give me clothing, sick and in prison. You did not visit me. Well, then they're also going to say, Lord, when was it? When was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And he will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did not, you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This passage illustrates exactly what we mean when we say that we are not just the beneficiaries of God's justice, but we are also the agents of it. 
Justice is something that we desperately seek. And we, we, believe, we believe that it's going to completely happen in the world to come. But we so often fail to recognize that we can be part of glimpses of justice right here, right now. The innate sense that we're born with, that you've had from the time that you were a child on the playground, that yearns for justice. That's God active and present in us. That voice that you hear crying out to you when you watch the news and you see a story and you think to yourself, that's not right. That is the voice of God that cares so very much about this present world and our present selves and who has made us and the world for a purpose which will indeed involve justice. It will involve us working to put things to rights, ourselves being put to rights and being rescued at last. That is the voice of God speaking to us. We're not just dreaming about it. We're hearing the voice of God spurring us on to be his agents of justice in the world. Jesus embodied that justice for us. What he did in his life and his death and his resurrection set in motion the creator's plan to rescue the world and to put it back to rights. In Jesus, we no longer have to worry about reaching ultimate justice. He's going to take care of that. But we're called to commit everyday, ordinary acts of justice. Feeding the hungry, giving water to the thirsty, welcoming the stranger, clothing the naked. None of these things are all that hard. But sometimes we get so busy with our cries for justice that somehow we don't actually get around to doing anything about them. Last year I had the opportunity to speak to a group of students who had come down here from Hope College over at the Bethel Farmworker Ministry. And we got into this conversation with the pastor, and he was explaining that every day, every day he runs the risk of being arrested. And he went on to tell stories of women who had come into the mission who were right in the middle of labor. So let me ask you something. What would you do? What would you do if right here in the middle of a sermon, the doors came open and in walked a woman who was in the middle of active labor? Would, would one of you take her to the hospital? Would you just smile at her and say, good luck with that, I'll pray for you? Would you do nothing and turn your gaze to the ground and just secretly hope that somebody else is going to take care of it? Would you have the guts to say, you know, somebody should really do something about that? I'd like to think that a couple years ago when I was pregnant with Maria, that had I gone into labor up here in the pulpit, that somebody, somebody would have taken me to the hospital or at the very least took out their cell phone called Sung. But there's a difference. At the mission, many of the women are undocumented. And in the state of Florida, it is illegal to transport for any reason an undocumented person, even a woman in the middle of labor. So what do we do with that as people of faith? Do, do we look the other way? Do we say, oh, you know, I, I'd love to help you, but we get to the hospital and the police are going to ask about your documentation, and so good luck with that. What do we do if the baby's life is in danger? What, if we do, what do we do if the mother's life is in danger? What do we do about the law? Whatever we do, 
Whatever we do to the least of these, we do to Jesus Christ. Now, I know that many of you were thinking about what you would do if a woman went into labor right here in this place. And because you have an innate sense of justice, you would take her to the hospital, documented or undocumented. Because it's the right thing to do. Because it is the humane thing to do. Because you, as a person of faith, would not be able to reconcile the potential suffering of an innocent child with the idea that putting her mother into a car to help her is against the law. You would err on the side of justice because you believe in the promise of grace. This is how our faith informs how we live. There are ten statues in front of London's Westminster Abbey, all of people who died believing that justice was worth dying for because their faith informed them that God's justice is ultimately going to prevail. And so Archbishop Oscar Romero, who spoke on behalf of all the poor in El Salvador, was assassinated, is there. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who stood against Nazi Germany and was hung in a concentration camp, is there. And Esther John, a Presbyterian evangelist from Pakistan, who was murdered by a Muslim fanatic, is there, along with seven others who stand as a modern-day reminder that we are called to work for justice on this side of glory, even as we wait for God's ultimate justice. The search for justice is one of the foundations of our faith. The belief that one day we're not going to have to choose between a woman and labor and the law is what pushes us to seek out God. That the things that we cannot reconcile in this life, murderers who get off on technicalities, unscrupulous businessmen who take advantage of the poor, nations who try to justify the extermination of an entire race of people, the things in our hearts and our souls that we know are wrong, these are the things that compel us to seek a higher power of justice. And it drives us to seek out God. But we have to remember always, always, that even as we go about seeking out that higher justice, we're still called to everyday, ordinary acts of justice right where we are. And we do that very simply. We feed the hungry. We give water to the thirsty. We clothe the naked. We go and visit the sick. It's not that the church should do something about it. It's that we... We, who are the church, should do something about it. One day, justice will come to us all. That's what scripture tells us. Justice will come to us all. But that doesn't mean that we can't work towards justice today. In fact, in fact, my friends, Christ himself called us to this holy work. To God be the glory, now and forevermore. Amen.